Sometimes I wonder if he's stacking the deck. I assure you, Commander, the cards are sufficiently randomized. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 46 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm talking about the Star Trek collectible card game with fellow Fire and Water Podcast Network founder and friend, the totally redeemable Shag. And <laughs> as, it, as it turns out, this is also the secret origin of my Siskoid identity and of our geek fellowship, Shag. That is true. It's in my notes, too. I'm glad you remembered. Well, I mean, that's more on your side. You're, you're my fan. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, folks, this has been fun. I got to go. <laughs> this is like Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton. You know, uh, you you made me your fan, but I made you a podcaster. You know, I made you. You made me first. We, we made each other. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a, you're the chicken. I'm the egg. Oh, or God. vice versa. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> they want to hear about uh, Star Trek, not this nonsense. <laughs> that's true. We'll get into some of the details, but if you're asking... What is a collectible or a customizable card game, or CCG? It's a card game where you have to build your own deck and strategy with the cards you have, and the business model isn't unlike the collecting of baseball cards. You end up with a lot of common and uncommon cards, and you chase rare and even super rare cards by opening blister packs and hoping there's one in there you don't have. And as the game comes out with more expansion packs, the game itself evolves, gets more complex, strategies change, and so on. The most famous of these is, of course, Magic the Gathering. As for the Star Trek CCG itself, in brief, it was produced by Decipher from 1994 to 2007, and basically it pits two players against one another, racing to complete missions with their ships and crews to get to 100 points. That's the very brief explanation, but before we dig any deeper, I want to ask you, Shag, What's your origin story with CCGs, with collectible card games? Well, collectible card games in general is, is sort of interesting. For me, I had a predisposition for collecting trading cards growing up. My brother uh, collected the original Star Wars Tops cards. I don't know if you remember that line. They were sure. Okay, uh, and, and they were infamous, and they still are. And I've still got all the ones my brother collected. And of course, wanting to be like my big brother, when Empire Strikes Back came around, I started buying those. And then later on in uh, 1989, I bought all the various Batman movie trading card series. So uh, even really, even before I became a comic collector, I had a passion for trading cards. It, to the point where later on I'd buy the nine pocket loaders and I'd, I still have all my old trading cards in pocket loaders now. And you know, when you think about trading cards versus CCGs, I'd say that the thing where collectible card games falls down is there's no stick of like disposable gum because right? that was a real <laughs> win, I think. But You say that, but there is one card in the whole game that does have a stick of gum. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, so I look forward to hearing that. Okay. So, uh, now you fast forward to 1993 here, right? Because we're talking about CCGs. And I think it was 1993, whenever Magic the Gathering. I worked in a comic book store. And the way it worked is we would call our distributor. And in this case, it was a company called Liberty. And we talked to our rep, our guy named Ernie. Ernie was great. He always gave us good advice. He'd say, oh, you want to order this new book? Or don't get this one. Or get two of these. This is hot. Whatever. 
Well, my boss goes out of town. And he says, hey, you handle the Liberty Orders this week. I'm like, okay. So I call Ernie. And he's like, hey, you got to order this thing. It's called Magic the Gathering. Just came out. It's super hot. I'm like, okay. Send us a couple boxes. Whatever. And we get it. No one understands the concept of collectible card games at this point. So it sits there on our counter. The original Magic the Gathering Black Border first widely available series sat on our counter for weeks. Couldn't get anyone to buy any of them. We would even open up packs and just like so people could see them. Didn't go anywhere. And my boss was furious with me. He's like, I'm never letting you order again. That's ridiculous. This is horrible. You know, you wasted all this money. Then all it took was one, like, I don't know, nine-year-old kid to buy one pack and then suddenly exploded. And, you know, that magic, I, I don't need to tell you about the explosiveness of there, but it just, that yeah. took off. So I played some, I, you know, once once we got around to, like, I guess probably the, what the White Border series of magic, I played some, and I spent a fair amount of money on it, but I never really fully invested in it, you know, at least mentally. Financially, I guess I did, but mentally I didn't really invest in it. And, if, you know, we'll talk about Trek in a bit. And then I experimented with other ones. I played, uh, I tried out Spellfire, I don't know if you remember that one from TSR, and Werewolf and Rage and all those, and I bought a ton of the Decipher Star Wars collectible card games. Tons and tons of the Star Wars collectible cards. I never played the game once, but I owned a zillion of those things. Now, and I, I'm bringing this up because I'm getting to a point that you actually sort of hinted at. So after my Star Trek phase, I wanted to buy something expensive from a comic book store. And I decided I didn't want to pay for it, so I was going to do it in trade. So I went through all my collectible card game ones, and I decided, I, personally, I could not part with my Star Trek cards. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So I found a small stack of valuable Magic cards and a small stack of valuable Star Wars cards. I took them into a comic shop, and I traded those small stack of cards in exchange for you probably can guess already, Siskoid, an unopened box of the Doctor Who collectible card game. <laughs> and now, this was adding to already all the packs I had bought. And I, had, I mean, we should do an episode on that someday. I have so many sickening amounts of those cards. Anyway, and that is what ultimately led you and I to get into each other's orbit, was that stupid Doctor Who collectible card game. <laughs> it's true, because magic is still big business today. That's true. The comic book store here, I think it's like one of the major... Revenue streams, and they've been burgled a couple times, and all these jackasses steal is magic cards. That is the worst. Like thousands of dollars of of magic cards, I mean, in the value of whatever rare cards are worth. And so I got into magic because when I founded a role-playing club in university. Of course you did. (laughs) Well, I had a couple friends who played, and then uh, somebody from out of province came to me and said, uh, said, oh, you guys play? Because he heard us talking about it or something. And uh, he was looking for a group, and then we started talking about, well, there's no, like, for people coming in to town that don't have groups playing D&D or whatever it is, it's hard to find other players. You don't, you know, you don't want to advertise your nerddom. (laughs) I live in a college town. I totally get it. I founded that for you. I mean, it never lasted, you know, once we were out of it. I don't think. It, uh, anyway, some of the players there played Magic. So that's, oh, okay, yeah, well, if we're going to play Magic, I'm going to buy a couple packs and play Magic as well. But I, I did, never liked it. Mm-hmm. To me, it was like playing uh, War. Ah, okay, sure. There's no story to it. Okay, you know, my monster beats your monster. And I know it's more complicated than that. But it was still like like that really easy game. That It's like one of the first games you learn as a kid, first card games. War It's like my card beats your card until there's no cards left, you know. For me, that's what it was. I didn't take to it. And uh, obviously, well, we're going to get to my Star Trek phase as well, but that's that's the card game that actually I, that I liked and inspired me. But I got rid of all those magic cards, and I did buy other CCGs here and there. And I, I have a pack of the Lord of the Rings that Decipher made. I kind of like those mechanics, but you know, I only have like, like one pack. 
Uh, I've got like a full set of um, New World Order Illuminati, the Steve Jackson oh, yeah, one. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. Yeah. And that had like a fun mechanic where you were like building conspiracy webs, completely different from any other CCG that was out there. Star Trek was really my only one where it connects with you and your fandom is that I never found any of those old Doctor Who CCGs. Uh, I've never even seen a pack. I've, I've seen them online. Really? And that's it. From what I saw, it's like, well, I looked at the mechanics and I was like, oh man, this is just like, it's so mechanical. Yeah. You know, so, some card games are just like, well, it's like Uno or whatever, you know, there, <laughs> it's a, there's a mechanic to it and then it just so happens that it has like pictures of Doctor Who on it. <laughs> that's how I felt about it. And that's kind of why I started, uh, and, and this isn't the only one, actually, like the first CCG I designed myself. So I'm coming to this as, like, you've played and collected. I've mostly collected, and then I've designed. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and so as a designer, well... So it's like, what's that old saying about, like, you know, uh, if you... Oh, gosh. Those who can't do teach. Thank you. <laughs> yes. That's exactly where I was going. I couldn't come up with it. I'm like, this is entertaining radio. <laughs> yeah. So actually, the first CCG I designed was actually improv-based, and it was supposed to, it was a, a lark. Uh, I uh, was uh, doing a lot of stuff for the Star Trek CCG. We're going to talk about that on their website and everything, on their forums. And a friend of mine in the improv community said, oh, you should do cards like that for the improv club here. In his mind, I was just going to write up stats. And it would be like a fun thing to do because we kept the we kept the community going during summers with a like an email a mailing list, <laughs> very primitive uh, internet stuff here. And then we would send like stuff that was like fun or you know whatever amusing. And so he said, well, you should do that for the mailing list. You should send like okay, this such such and such a player would have such and such stats and skills, just like the Star Trek CCG did. He didn't expect me to turn around and within a week have a game designed. <laughs> I was going to say, clearly he didn't know you that well. All you got to <laughs> do is like dangle a carrot in front of Suscoid, and then from concept to production is like no time. <laughs> no time at all. So, so I had like, like designs, like graphic designs. It's pretty primitive with my Photoshop skills at the time and what I could play with. But basically for a few years there, I was making like these whole expansions, and there's like a uh, JavaScript thing where you could open a pack virtually and, <laughs> and, you know, and like I added new rules and, and, you know, and are so you on. Are you talking about the improv game or the, or the, or you're on to Dr. Who now? I mean, both have the same model, but oh, I, I that's what I did with the improv game. And okay, the idea gotcha. was it was basically the same as Star Trek. You had players on your bench that you sent into missions or really improvs and it was basically the same mechanics in some ways. That is amazing. Just like for fun. But people started buying them, and uh, and I started making sets for the year. So, oh, like, the season's over. Do you want your team? you want the whole league? And I would just, like, print out these cards, all on the cheap. And then uh, uh, while I'm doing that, at some point, I guess, I decide I'm going to do the Doctor Who unofficial, you know, Doctor Who CCG, which, again basically took its structure from the Star Trek CCG because like the three stats at the bottom and and skills and you put characters in the TARDIS and you send it on missions just like the Star Trek game just of course once you're doing that you're you're okay like, what does it mean to play with space time and to have regenerations and you're putting Doctor Who stuff in there but i made like 2000 plus cards for Doctor <laughs> Who you don't do anything small sir <laughs> No, well, over time. And again, expansions and expansions had themes, and you could open blister packs with JavaScript. And I, I made like the pack art. Like, you could, you, it looks like it's a real product. 
Of course it isn't. And it even went to second edition, which had like better graphics. And then that's when I, I kind of quit because it just, I couldn't keep it all in my head anymore. And I was getting interested in other things. And so uh, it died after a number of years. But that's where you're, you found that, right? Yeah. Cause I, w- I was enjoying the Doctor Who collectible card game. And after I didn't play it all that much because there weren't that many people that either were that passionate about Doctor Who that you could find back in the early, early days of the internet in your area, or uh, people would play it once or twice and go, this game sucks, and they didn't want to play it again. So I just continued, I would make some of my own cards, and I'd look for other people customizing cards on the web, and that's where I found you, oddly enough. I mean, and I had, like, partners. There's, like, people would design cards on the, you know, like, fans, if you will, but fellow players and people who you actually used it. But like any CCG, and this happened to the Star Trek CCG, it gets a bit bloated. There are just too many cards, too many possible strategies, and you just, like, you don't even remember that you made a card, and you're, you're making that card again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, you know, when you have a team of designers and but this was just a fan project as many are and all of this stuff is actually available and i'll in the content descriptions and, and pictures that we'll post on the fire and water website i'll put the links to that stuff so if you're interested have at it i do not own any of those copyrights except for the improv game i guess obviously the images are not mine well you didn't say the origin of the name siscoid yet that really has more to do with the star trek ccg so oh, oh, oh okay sorry i didn't mean to get ahead then yeah well let's talk about the you know star trek which is the Aim of the show. 30 minutes into it. <laughs> well, yes. Let's talk about that Star Trek CCG for you. So for me, I, I mentioned earlier I had a predisposition to trading cards, right? So uh, where this all sort of the Venn diagram starts to hit is in 1991, Impel came out with a series of Star Trek trading cards. And again, I remember I was working in the comic shops around this time. I, well, I may have just started the shop or, or I, either way. I was passionate about these Impel Star Trek trading cards. And I lived and died by these things, man. I was such a fan of Next Gen. And so um, I, I collected all the cards. I had you know tons of doubles and everything because I wanted to have all of the cards, and I got them in nine pocket loaders. And that's actually how I learned all the original series names and plots. Because at that point in my life, I still hadn't seen all the episodes of Star Trek, the original series. Little factoid, I still haven't seen all the episodes of the original Star Trek <laughs> series. But that's how... So a lot of times I find myself nowadays, I'll come up against an episode. Uh, Journey to Babel is a perfect example. I was sure I had seen that episode because probably because I had read the card, you know, and I knew the plot and all this stuff. So when I actually sat down to watch it, I'm watching I'm like, I have never seen this episode. So a lot of that came from that trading card experience. And I used these cards to create checklists of episodes I wanted to watch or ones on VHS. And that's a little that's a little out there for Rob Kelly because Rob Kelly loves that I made lists. Anyway, so along comes the Star Trek collectible <laughs> card game. And again, I'm working in the comic shops. There are millions of card games after Magic just exploding everywhere. And people are just slapping licenses on these things, right? Like you said, the Doctor Who card game wasn't that good. They just you know kind of carried the... The image and the mechanics weren't there. Well, the Star Trek one, people started, I, I missed out on the first wave, the black border ones, but people started talking about it, and I was passionate about Star Trek, so I started picking up with the white border series, which came out around December 1994. So that's probably when I started playing. Now, I mentioned to you I played Magic, but that was more something to pass the time. Dude, the Star Trek Next Generation card game, that was a passion for me. I mean, me and my buddy John. But by the way, John, uh, he's, a, he's a fellow podcaster. He does a, has a network called The Unique Geek. Uh, if you know anything about Dragon Con, you've probably heard of him. He does the 50 Days of Dragon Con podcast. Anyway, John and I were buddies. We knew each other through the comic shop. We were neighbors. And we freaking loved this game, man. We would, my memory is, I, I'm sure this isn't right, but like every night is my memory. We were drinking and eating pizza because he worked at a Domino's and he'd get pizza all the time. So we would drink and eat pizza like almost every single night and play 
play this freaking card game. And what I remember is working at the comic shop, it's like my paychecks. I would look at it and go, all right, how much can I afford for rent? How much for food and comics? And how much for Star Trek trading cards? I mean, I just kept sinking money into these things. We'd brag uh, as we bought packs. Uh, he would call me when he'd get home. Like, we'd be talking on the phone, and I could hear that crinkle noise. He'd open packs on the <laughs> phone, and he'd be like, oh, my God, I just got this card. I'm like, stop, you're killing me. And uh, it's funny. Like, in my memory, again, I mentioned it, I feel like we played every night. Clearly, we didn't, because I look back, I'm like, well, you know, I had school, and I remember the girls I were dating at that point. I don't remember any of the dates with those girls, but I remember playing cards with Johns. So that's kind of scary. Anyway, so we played from probably about December 94, probably only until the late summer of 95, because he actually moved away. So it was probably only about nine months of my life, which is crazy, because in my mind, I feel like it was years. But dude, it was a seriously intense nine months that really imprinted on me. Yeah, wow. It's fun that you had someone to share it with. Yeah. Which is the thing that was missing for me. I was very much a player, more so than a collector. I was very much a player. I say that, but it forced me to go online. It forced me to share the hobby out there with strangers, essentially. Mm -hmm. For me, it was the forums. If you look at any of the original, and I mean, they always kept on through that, but even from the original booklets, there was always, you know, go to decipher.com yeah. or whatever it was. And so I did, and there were forums there, on-topic forums, dream card forums, which were people were sort of like pitching concepts. I don't think the company went, oh, good idea, but maybe <laughs> they did sometimes. And there was like off-topic stuff if you just wanted to talk about Star Trek or anything, really. You know, they built a community around it, which I think is something we understand here at the network. Just a bit. And uh, originally, my everybody had a handle that was Star Trek-based. Some had like Star Wars-based because there was also the Star Wars CCG. And shout out to our friend Fern, who was a giant Star Wars CCG nerd. Oh, wow. When I first met Fern, he was uh, like a young improv player, teenage improv player. All he did, him and one of his buddies from his team, all they did, lunchtime, we're not in a game, we're playing the Star Wars CCG. Hmm. So they were somewhere in the cafeteria alone playing that game. They were so into it. And I, you know, you know me, I wasn't really a Star Wars fan, so I didn't buy into that game. But at, at some point, you can only buy into one if you're really going to you know, go for the cards and have a limited budget, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm on the forums, and um, uh, my original name was Q-Tip. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you that. <laughs> well, I, I used to be, uh, like, heckled as that when I reffed improv, because I was, you know, a, a, like a thin frame with a sort of buzz cut kind of... So Q-tip. It's not that different nowadays, guys. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to cut this out of the show. Uh, but the, so it was Q-tip originally, and then somebody scammed me. Somebody sent me a fake card. I, all I remember was like sort of like a mission card or something, or it had like like these swirly shapes on it, like it was like a doorway to the alternate universe before alternate universe, hmm. uh, the expansion came out. And um, they had like a decipher address, which was fake. Basically, they sent me this image and said, we're trying to see how fast news travels through the forums and whatever. How many people can you actually have this card seen by? Uh, so I did that, and then it turned out to be a fake, and everybody was angry at whoever disseminated this false information, sure. which included Q-Tip. I erased the account. It was very early days anyway. So I erased the account, and I came up with a different one, which was Ciscoid, which was an alternate version of Cisco, I guess. Cisco Ciscoid. And this was my new name, and I, I never, this is the first time I've ever told anyone that it was also this other identity. Ciscoid, sort of, well, I learned my lesson, but 
I think the forums really turned on my content creator gene. We've seen through the improv stuff, you've like the Doctor Who CCG, which is later, obviously, the blog, the podcasts. I'm a content creator, and I think that's probably what I am at heart. Whatever I get into, I will also want to create extra content, bonus content for people. I guess I've always been like that. Certainly lots and lots of uh, examples of that on the network, that's for sure. Plenty. That's, that's how I think. How can I spin this off into this other project? That's how this show got started, actually. <laughs> it, it, true. Most of them. Uh, so I did some things. Like, one of the things I did was Siskoid's Rolodex, which was the, the thing Siskoid was most famous for. It's not the first card of the day review thing about the Star Trek CCG or any of them, really. Apparently, at least at one point, it had the record for the longest-running card of the day feature of any card game. 2,484 articles. Oh, my god! Each one on a separate card, up through 2005, which was like partway through second edition. Like a third into second edition, and then I stopped. So this was every day? You did one for like five-plus years? Yes. That's amazing. On brand. That's true. Cisco blogger geekery. What am I saying? Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> my take was to not fixate on strategy and usefulness. It was in there. But other, you know, other articles kind of covered that a lot. But I also wanted to review picture choice, flavor text, and Trek sense, which mm. is how close any given character, ship, or effect uh, was to representing the show. And I don't know if I coined the term. I probably didn't. But I definitely popularized it. And now I see it on the various wikis covering the game. They talk about Trek sense. So interesting. I, man, just hearing all this is fascinating because I was in such isolation with this game. It was just me and John. I mean, that was it. You know, we didn't we didn't even play with other people. I didn't look online. None of this stuff. So hearing of this whole community that's out there is fascinating. And I still speak to some of them uh, sometimes. I also did dream cards, which were textual. I didn't do, like, graphic cards at that time. Like, this was the project. I made one card for every entry in the Star Trek Encyclopedia. Oh, my God. And I got to God. about a third through the letter M. So that's thousands of card ideas. You look at that encyclopedia, and it's got, like, you know, every food ever seen or mentioned on the show. Did you enter for Gok? I did. I created a food card, which had its own mechanic. So, (laughs) I mean, there were so many. If something already had a card, I probably left it alone. But if it didn't, you know, I made a card for it. And all of these things are still available. They're all at ciscoid.com. If you look at the bottom of that, it's just, like, uh, really crappy html from the day but if you go right down to that the bottom of the of ciscoid.com the index page mm-hmm. there's like a ciscoid stuff and it's and it's full of stuff in there because that wasn't the only dream card project i was doing but it was like the main one uh, so i did that you know i've done graphic cards like very early on i i took like old commons and i stuck like a photocopy of my dream card on it or whatever and i you know it was stuff like I did stuff from the novels. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, it was like a black and white photocopy, and then I sort of put color on it with crayons. They look terrible, and and the glue has made them all, like, you know, curvy. I just didn't have the software or ability to compose anything on the computer back then, you know, when I was doing that. But obviously, this is the hobby that sent me to create these other CCGs. And it's also the origin of Cisco's blog of geekery, because, uh, you know, now it's finishing its 13th year. I think it's sort of like replaced the CCG interest if you look at the dates. If you look at the blog originally, it had two articles a day, and one of those articles was a Star Trek review. And I've reviewed every episode and film of Star Trek and most of the comics. That started on those forums. Oh, wow. There was like the 
the off topic one, I did reviews. It's, I was, I was a content creator for that site to the point where I eventually got contacted by the company to write official strategy articles for the game, especially in regards to new affiliations that came out. So these have been lost to the ages, but I remember writing one for the Herogen. So I probably wrote articles on the Voyager affiliations and maybe stuff as early as uh, for people who know like Blaze of Glory or Rules of Acquisition, those expansions. I just don't know anymore. But the point is, they sent me boxes of booster packs as a reward. Oh, so you didn't, you didn't get paid. You got loot? Right. So I didn't actually... You'll, you'll see pictures of my collection on the website. And it, there's like a lot of boxes stacked on top of each other. I didn't spend all that money. I got like two, three boxes every expansion just for helping out and doing stuff for the website. Just so you guys know, I was really proud of my collection. So I sent Cisco a picture. And then he sent me his, and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, it's no, it's insane. <laughs> Thankfully, that's when he finally told me he didn't pay for all of it. I'm like, oh, my, I'm like, how did you live? <laughs> There's so many cards. Like, I even have all the specialty products. If they came out with, like, the two-player uh, set, there was a like, blue box and a red box. I got that. The Fajo collection, which you had to send out for, was, like, 100 bucks or something, which had, like, very special cards and printings and including a card. Like, the there's a card for the, the 1962 Roger Maris baseball card. Was this a DS9 thing? No, it was the one that was owned by Kivas Fajo in that, that episode where he kidnaps Data. Oh, wow. Okay. He, he had like the, he was showing like, oh, I have the Mona Lisa and I have this and I have that. And he had like this baseball card. It does come because the Fajo collection was all like specialty product kind of vanity cards. Some of them have a special inking, some of them, including a Dixon Hill card. Nice. Where all the game text is in Dixon Hill speak, like in noir speak. And it comes with Dixon Hill's business card. So you get like these little prizes. So I got everything back in today. So I sunk a lot of money into it regardless. Uh, you know, it's not just, it wasn't all just bonus stuff that they sent me. Like the latest cards that I have are probably Call to Arms, which was the second edition expansion. Like the, like, I think it's like the second or third expansion they came out with. Uh, but it almost seems like these are stray packs or something. And then they came out with like, I don't know, nine or 10 more. Goodness gracious. From what I can see, 2005 or thereabouts is when I quit. And I think there are many reasons for that. I think there was a change of personnel at Decipher around this time. I wasn't being contacted by the company anymore. My contact there changed positions or was dismissed or moved off from the company or something. I don't remember the details. Maybe even the forums collapsed at that point. From a collector's point of view, Second Edition is a better looking and better design game, but... It was a little like recollecting all the concepts that I already had in my collection. Sure. Yeah, I would imagine yeah. it would be. So, I mean, it was different, but it still felt like, well, it's like starting over. And it wasn't as fun. I think it was a better game, but not as fun a collecting experience. Well, part of it, too, you know, back then, these were like the first time we'd ever have a chance to ever see some of these characters on a trading card. So it, was, it was almost like collecting trading cards in that respect, because it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm... I'm seeing, you know, Shelby on a card, you know, that, that, mm. there's no card that exists with Shelby. So it was very exciting to see all these little things from episodes that we never thought we'd see again unless we rewatched the episode. You know how you said that trading cards were sort of your gateway into the Star Trek lore? Yeah. For me, this CCG definitely was. Sometimes they invented names for characters, yeah, like background characters, and they had to invent their names. But people were amazed at my general knowledge of Star Trek trivia 
And it all came from the cards. Like I could say, they would say, oh, like this episode. Oh, yes, the planet's called this and these characters are called that. And it, it all came from the cards. It's like cards memorized. I hadn't memorized the show. I just made all these connections, you know. That's how I was with the Impel trading cards. I knew the name. Of, like people were amazed. I knew the name of every single episode. You know, two weeks after it aired or whatever. Or you know, I just I would know all the names of the episodes and it just yeah. At that time, so I've lost a lot of that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what I've lost of that, I've gained in like Doctor Who lore. I think it's like these two things are like competing in my head, and uh, I only have so much space. I frequently joke. I have a cycle of Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, comics, rinse lather repeat and they just i keep cycling through them i'm in a star trek phase right now i started you know when we did that new frontier episode of this show uh which i like to refer as the new frontier infomercial rather than an actual discussion but uh that got me in a passion of rereading star trek books so i've been rereading or reading new at least for me star trek books ever since and so i'm, I'm definitely on a trek phase that i can't seem to shake that's awesome it's a good time to be a trek fan or, or unless it's a bad time to be a trek fan depending on what people think of the new shows <laughs> Let's get back to the game. What about this game? And you're coming at it from a perspective of having played it mm -hmm. quite a lot, but then also basically basic set, right? You, you didn't... Don't downplay my 363 cards, thank you very much. <laughs> you have them all? Is it? Is oh, no, I, I don't have them all, but that's what the first set was. It was 363 different cards, but no, I don't have all of them. I still don't have all of them, no. I do have all of them, but that's because I bought, like, there's there's like a tin box oh, with right. silver, yeah. uh, a silver border, and then I got that just to be sure that I had everything. From that set, obviously, I'm missing you know bits and parts from others. What was great about this game? What was great? What was not so great? But let's talk about what was great first. Well, for me as a player, it felt like Star Trek to me. You know, because the the idea of getting your ship and getting your crew and going on a mission, whether it's space or a planet, whatever, I felt like it was Star Trek. So I don't know if you've ever played the the Battlestar Galactica board game. I know that's not Star Trek, but for anyone that's ever played the Battlestar Galactica board game, uh, you, you all know immediately what I'm about to say, which is the game felt like the show. Like, when you play that game, you really feel like you're an episode. In the Star Trek card game, I felt the same way. I felt like, whereas Magic, you mentioned Magic the Gathering, it's just a slugfest until somebody dies. Whereas here, I felt like I was legitimately doing that. I also loved the images. And, and I didn't realize this until I was rereading, or reading probably for the first time, the Player's Guide uh, just recently this week. And it was talking about how they got the images. Because back then, Paramount only had so many stock images. And so how they would take really high-grade copies of the show, get a screen capture, and then upscale the resolution, which, you know, in 1994 was almost unheard of. It was something amazing they could do. So a lot of the images, too, were fantastic, because you see, I don't know, different angles of people that wasn't a stock shot, or you see a character that was only in the background or whatever. So the, the images were absolutely fantastic. I love that. This is kind of silly. There's one thing this game introduced that I absolutely adored, and we just, I don't know why, we ate it up. There's a thing in the game, when you play a personnel card, as you put them down, like I, I have Jordy LaForge in my hand right now. Uh, I, as I put Jordy onto the table, I'm supposed to say, Jordy LaForge, reporting for duty. <laughs> and as goofy as it is, we loved it. It was like, you know, every time you got to pull out, you know, I don't know, John Picard, whoever, it was so exciting to do that. And every game has its own thing. Like we used to, Spellfire, I mentioned that earlier, that was the TSR magic ripoff. That introduced the idea of when you were done with your turn, you were supposed to knock on the table. I don't know if you can hear this or not, but you would go... You would do this, uh, the knock on the table to indicate your turn was over. Everyone 
thought that was hilarious and, and began to mock it. But the, the reporting for duty thing, we never mocked it. We just loved it. Wow. Wow. So for me, again, probably the biggest thing, though, for me is it felt like I was playing Star Trek. Now, I've got some not-so-greats, but I want to hear for what, what Q-Tip thought was great about the game first. Right. Q-Tip and Siskoid both thought, well, the same. I think what I call Trek Sense, in some way, it is the uh, the downfall of the game, in, in that by trying to emulate Star Trek, eventually the game got bloated, you know, mm. as you put in more elements, more and more elements. Yeah, for me, it was like, even just looking at it, just in terms of mechanics, it was telling a story. And I love the storytelling aspect of it. Like, of course, it's the shows that you've seen, but you re-scramble them. Different people go on away missions, or you might even have a treaty and and have your Romulans and Klingons working together or whatever. But things did what they did on the show. You know, characters could fight. Characters were going through dilemmas and, you know, getting to the mission and flying around. And then cards that would affect those things were all based on the show and worked kind of like... There were some mechanical ones, of course, but... For the most part, it was things that you'd seen on the show and how could they be reflected in the game. Even as it got bloated and they added on mechanics, that, that was basically the problem is that they added on mechanics as, as it went, new card types and whatnot. But each of these were bringing a new storytelling aspect to the game. To me, that was exciting. You know, Whether or not as a game it was disruptive eventually wasn't important to me it's like I don't, nobody cares about the Kazon but oh a new affiliation <laughs> and they're working differently and they have diff- different objectives and it's exciting to see another element of Star Trek being brought into the game and have its own little you know niche and way of working that was maybe different a little different from the others I just want to add on to that real quick like to touch on that storytelling aspect like certain interrupts or events that you as a player would play during the game almost felt like the big you know, a uh, tension moment right before a commercial break. It'd be like, oh, that just happened. And then you could almost envision a commercial break happening at that point. So, yeah, it genuinely felt like an episode. Yeah, and if you need an explanation for what's happening, you just say, Q screwed everything up. You know? Right. <laughs> That's how it starts. And the other thing was the online community. I got to say, I, you know, I, I've tried to be as proactive on other forums for other things. And either it's dead air or the people there are just actively dismissive of what you're trying to bring. Hmm. Uh, so the STCCG forums, it's where I created my online identity, and it's the foundation of what I guess we'll jokingly call my geek empire. <laughs> but it was a place where you were encouraged to be creative. It was friendly, it was supportive, it was like the admins were supportive, the group of players and collectors were supportive, a lot like Fire and Water's comment section, actually. Aww. And I think that's really rare, folks. You're all living treasures, either from that day or, you know, the the people listening now. If you ever doubt the community and the sense of taking care of each other in the Fire and Water uh, message boards, go out and look at the YouTube comments for a minute for other stuff, (laughs) and you'll get an appreciation for just how nice you folks are. Yeah, no, I mean, remember the IMDB comments that they they had to scrap because it was so bad, you know? Oh, jeez. But you go on forums for other games. I'm not going to name names, but maybe you're interested in an RPG or something, and, and you go to those forums... And a lot of the time, it's just like you're talking to no one, no time. And, and there's a lot of activity, but nobody's taking notice of you or or they're telling you to go home, basically, because it's their turf. So I, I've had these experiences, which were completely at odds with what I lived through with the Star Trek CCG. So I'd say that was one of the good things, even though it's parallel to it. But the game does have its faults. So what do you think are the bad elements? Well, before I talk about the things I felt like as a player, I'll tell you now, as a <clears throat> middle-aged man, the major fault for me is rereading the rule book is a lot harder with these eyes. This it's is, so small! This, this rule book is printed for a young 
young person, let me tell you. <laughs> I had to get out readers just so I could read this stupid thing again. But uh, as far as playing the game, gameplay, it could be slow. That was the downside. Now, it's sort of like, you know, a boring episode of the show. It could be a little plotting because you're just going from timeline, you know, space line to space line to space line to get missions accomplished. Sometimes it'd be hard to get ships out of your hand. I'll talk more about that later. But And also, it, I was a fairly defensive player. I wasn't a very offensive player. And I'll talk about that strategy as well. But if you have two people that are both fairly defensive, it just becomes kind of a race to completion. And you're not really interacting as much. You're like, you're doing your half of the space lane, they're doing their half of the space lane, and it's not terribly exciting. The game works better when you're interacting with each other, whether it's combat or throwing a lot of interrupts at each other or playing events. That's when the game gets more exciting. So the downside could be player styles. And again, the game could be a little slow and plotting at times. A lot of those problems got fixed as you went along, as the release expansions or the really, they were really good about releasing like warp packs and that kind of stuff where it was basically like oh here's a new starter product it's gonna have everything you need to actually play out of the box you know that kind of mm. stuff having trouble getting a ship out or getting your personnel out it's like well now here's a card that you can play that's gonna allow you to seed them from the beginning that kind of stuff there we go so so they quickly realized what would the those faults with the basic set and they kept adding cards and making them really easily available. Like the warp pack, which had a lot of the cards that you would need to fix those problems was free. You just had to mail, you know, write in for it and they send it to you free. So they were aware and they changed as they changed the game, they addressed those problems. I think second edition really addresses all those problems. For one thing, you, you didn't have to be two players. You could play as many players as you wanted Mm. on the same board because the seeding wasn't the same. So I think like one of the problems maybe with the slowness is that remember the game started and you had to put down your missions and you had to put like dilemmas under the missions and like the seeding phase was a good 15 minutes maybe of preparing the space line the, yeah. you know the you're building the board basically in second edition you drew dilemmas from a pile. You you were building that little deck of dilemmas that the other person would have to go through that kind of thing hmm. everything was more point driven so like different missions had different uh, amounts of dilemmas under it basically or you know different powers of dilemma so that's one of the things that they did fix in the second edition like it was really a more well balanced in terms of of game not just in terms of speed but you know generally i think ship battles were especially boring originally I don't necessarily agree, but okay. No, no, okay. They may have made them more interesting later, but as a player from that edition, I, the ship battles, and I was going to talk about this later, but the ship battles actually uh, were more frequent in, in our games uh, okay. than the uh, away team battles. The away team battles almost never happened, and so uh, I, I found it kind of exciting, but then again, maybe I was just happy with what I had. <laughs> maybe they got better. Eventually, they addressed it with a like a tactic cards, which had like the, their own little mini deck you might use to... To make it more interesting and varied. Hmm. In second edition, they didn't do that, but they actually made like the Klingons could score hella points doing battle. So there's more incentive to do it. Oh, okay. Which I think, you know, in the original game, you're kind of playing offensively, disrupting your adversary's play by fighting, but you're not really getting much out of it for yourself. But in second edition, they were like more thematic in terms of the affiliations. So they could do that. I think the bloat. Is an obvious problem. Many add-ons, unforeseen card interactions. The cipher was always putting out new facts mm. and um, you know premium cards that countered or fixed 
something that was suddenly too powerful. So second edition was more streamlined in that case. They knew what they were doing, obviously, after so many years. The original game started with nine card types, ended with 17. Jeez! Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, many of them you could have just said. I think even from the onset, why artifact cards and equipment cards? They could have all have been the same, and then one of them says seed under a planet, you know, where you find the artifact, rather than, you know, originally they were really thinking in terms of Trek sense, mm-hmm. which I like, but in terms of game sense, they sort of created a, you know, like too many things. Now, I'll play devil's advocate here for a second, Go ahead. is that, you know, this is 1994, this is like one year after Magic started, so the amazing thing about collectible card games was it really was an entirely new form of gameplay. No one had ever done anything like this before. It was not comparable with Dungeons and Dragons or board games. I mean, it was completely a new concept. And so to come out of the gate only a year later and, and learn as much as they could from Magic and build their own game, you know, without a Richard Garfield, was that his name? I can't remember. Whoever built Magic, the guy was a genius for card games. But without someone like that, and they did it themselves, I think they did a heck of a job. I mean, it's pretty amazing because I played a lot of other ones, and those card games were lousy. The Doctor Who one we took, we picked on Spellfire, all these other ones, they just weren't entertaining. This one, and now admittedly, maybe some of it was my Star Trek love, but the game itself held up. I think it had depth that you could add things to it because you were just like adding to what the story could say. It was a strong base on which they built. But the base itself was maybe sometimes uneventful in a way. Uh, as they added to it, it just created so much more stuff that could happen. And I think like two players could have entirely different decks and have not even one a single card in common in a way. Yeah. Like affiliations. I want your opinion on this. Because I felt like originally, like until they started adding affiliations, mm-hmm. I felt the affiliations were a little samey. They were. Like they were a little Federation, samey. Klingon, yep. Romulans. Did you feel at all like you could play them completely differently from one another? I wonder if there was a little bit of our role-playing behavior in here, because we did play each one differently. We sort of followed the passions of them. And the cards were built in a certain way. For example, the Federation, which is who I typically play. Part of it was my love of the show. But also because, I, again, I mentioned I'm a defensive player. Well, the, the Federation, one of the things about the Federation is they cannot initiate battle. Someone else has to initiate battle first. Right. And so that sort of fit my style. I wanted to win the game, so I wanted to complete the missions, and you don't score any points for battles. At least maybe you do in later editions, but you don't score any points in battles. So I was like, I don't, I don't see the point in risking my, you know, my Enterprise or whatever it may be, or my Sutherland. By the way, there's a ship called the Sutherland. Shout out to Ruth and Darren. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I didn't want to risk losing that stuff, so I focused on defensive missions. As far as just winning the game, I mean, Battlestar Galactica again. In the Battlestar Galactica board game, the goal is to jump the ship. To win the game. And so in my mind, I was very much a jump the ship kind of guy, which is, even though this is before that, but either way, I I wanted to win, get points. That's what I, points, points, points. So I didn't care about the battle. So defensive worked for me. So I played the Federation as sort of a peacekeeper. You know, when I came up against other alien races, I tried, you know, whether if my buddy's playing, you know, Klingon or, or Romulan or whatever, I didn't want to start a fight. I wanted to figure out ways to work together. Or if I was playing Romulan, man, I would make sure my deck was full of the sneaky screw you cards. Because I wanted to be 
strategy and I wanted to be underhanded and espionage and sneaky. So I played it that way. And a lot of the, I, I feel like the Romulan cards were built in that way. That they were built as sort of like screw you cards. And then when I played Klingon, which I didn't do very often. If I played, I was usually Federation of Romulan. If I played Klingon, I would try and attack. It wasn't really my thing, which is probably why I didn't play it all that often. So I feel like there was some differences, but at the end of the day, it may have just been redressing the same kind of concepts a little differently. So there, there was some sameness. I can see what you're saying, but I, I played them yeah. differently. Over time, differences started to, to shape up. You know, they would create cars that were more Klingon-based or, you know, that would say, you need to be playing Klingons to play this, you know? And the other affiliations sometimes had, like, objectives that were not missions, but sort of overarching things to do that also scored you points or helped you with missions or disrupted the opponent's stuff. So eventually the game started to differentiate even the the original three. Second edition really leaned into it. So I'll give you some examples of what the themes that you had in second edition, which were inspired by what first edition had been doing over time, over thousands of cards, you know. For example, the feds have a lot of effects that seem to help the other player or force the other player to help them. Hmm. They are the, the grease that keeps the universe going. The feds, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Klingons had a real reason to fight because they could score points from it. Romulans were treacherous long-term thinkers, so they manipulate their draw deck to have the many cards that use that. The Bajorans are about tradition and history, so they manipulate their discard pile. The Borg can adapt through dilemmas and steal your resources, etc. You had very different gameplay based on what affiliation you picked. And then even within that, you know, once you're doing, okay, like the the Deep Space Nine characters have their own kind of sub-theme. The Voyager characters have their own kind of sub-theme. Enterprise characters, they're not the same. The show isn't the same. So we're going to give them effects that say, if you have Deep Space Nine characters, you can do this. You can work with the station. You can... Hmm. There were more themes as the game advanced and in second edition they were built in from the beginning and I'd, I'd say one last bad thing about it is that it wasn't magic and that's what everyone wanted to play like for me it was like <laughs> i could not get anyone interested in playing it so the few games i played i played with my kid brother over christmas holidays or something if we mentioned magic we should also mention pokemon i mean that that also was another collectible card game that exploded definitely it was in play by the time second edition was around it sounds like oh it. for sure yeah Yu-Gi-Oh and i mean uh, these anime ones oh yeah <laughs> us old folks are like <laughs> let's talk particulars did you have a favorite affiliation? Was it the Federation? Yeah, it, it was always going to be a, fi- a Federation for me. I I have a really unhealthy love for Star Trek ships. Whenever I, I watch Star Trek the Motion Picture, you know the extended ship porn scene that we call it. I'll watch that. I could watch that on a loop for like 10 hours, man. Like, I just love looking at Federation ships. So uh, that was part of my love for doing that. And the other, it just, it was very exciting to be able to play the main cast of the show. That was always very exciting for me. So for me, definitely a Federation was more my affiliation. Now, if I continued with all these expansions, I don't know, maybe I would have wanted to have a, I don't know, Horda deck or a, a Suliban <laughs> deck. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> those were never made available. I don't think they ever existed. I don't think there'd be enough cards. I mean, that's, you name it some of those affiliations. I'm like, how many of those cards did they have? I mean, I guess Bajorans, you had the whole run of DS9. So they, you probably could get enough Bajorans. But some of those other races, like Kazon, did, was there really enough of the Kazon from the first season of Voyager to make a whole deck? I don't know. I felt it wasn't a very deep affiliation. Like Kazon and Vidians and Herogen all got their own affiliations. Like their own colors and their own, but they were a very small group, and you weren't really expecting to get very many more cards like in the next expansion or the next one. You know, sure. it's like 
They're a very tight little group. If you're playing the the Kazon or the Vidians, like if you're playing the Vidians, you have an objective about you know organ theft. You're trying to cure the phage, and that's how you're gonna help yourself win the game. It's not just mission. If you really want to play Vidian, you're probably just playing these core Vidians all the time. You won't get many more. Like you know, the Federation. What's fun about them is that you get a lot of characters. Yeah, you a lot of, really do. You know, recognizable yeah. faces. In. Yeah, and different versions of them eventually. You know, alternate universe versions and all of this stuff is pretty cool. Collectability-wise, I think the Federation is probably the best because you get more cards and more characters you you care about. Yeah. You know, they're not like these universal uh, common Klingons or Romulans that were given a name for the card game, basically, but they're nobodies. Eventually, Federation, Klingon, Romulans, eventually we had Borg, Bajorans, Cardassians, Ferengi, Dominion, Kazan, Vidians, and Herogen. That was like the original game. And uh, the second edition got through to Dominion, you know, in that list. They didn't do the the Voyager-specific ones. They never got to that. Shocker. And I don't think they ever would have. Right. But they didn't, like, do, like, because you had, like, non-aligned cards. Mm -hmm. And there's no, like, Vidians or Kazon in non-aligned cards or anything in the second edition. I think the the game collapsed before they maybe have done that. The game's popularity kind of waned from Voyager on, if you look at the expansions. I don't think anyone really wanted to play Kazon or Vidians. (laughs) Well, I mean, Star Trek itself was going through a rough period by the time Voyager was starting to wind down. I mean, Enterprise rejuvenated a little bit, but I mean, the the populace had sort of, I don't want to say turned on Star Trek, but they, I think they'd kind of had enough. I mean, because they'd had weekly adventures since 1987 and it got, you know, it needed a rest for a while and then, you know, now it's come back strong because that rest, that it got that rest and now it, we're all ready again. So what is my favorite? I think it's the Borg because they play very differently and they show that the game was very adaptable. Pardon the pun. You know, <laughs> well, you really you're working with objectives rather than missions. You're capturing and assimilating crew. You're sharing skills through your network. Even the look of the cards was like uh, white text on black boxes instead of the reverse. Oh, that's clever. And and people weren't officers or engineers or security. That might be in their skill list, but they, they didn't have those classifications. Instead, they had like those node icons, you know, like o- over the top of a Borg oh, in the hive. They're right. just like that green or red or blue thing with lightning going through it. Other than, yeah, I'm just going to ask you some questions here. Other than like Hue, did they give them names or were they just numbers and symbols or? Second edition did this better by calling them survey drone, tactical drone. Ah, the okay. original game went like, Six of 16, and then in the text, it said tactical drone. Mm, okay. You know? And then it said objective or something. It's like it had like its own function. Uh, so it was very, very robotic, even in the text, the way it went. And all the drones were basically like had very, very similar stats, you know, ingenuity and strength. And uh, what's the other one? Integrity, I think. Integrity, except for the board queen and whatnot. They worked as a unit and they had like very, very, very different gameplay than anything else. And this was like the first time we had a new affiliation after feds klingons and romulans so it felt like oh my god the game can do so much more interesting with the same basic building blocks we don't have to like there's no sense for the borg are not going to do missions but they're assimilating those planets instead and so they have maybe like different success conditions and once they capture a planet if they assimilate your outpost you're done you know stuff like that so they were very, very dangerous. Did they change the rules of ship combat, or were their ships like monstrously overpowered though to represent what would happen in the show? Or I mean, they had conditions for battle mm-hmm. where, you know, like the Federation can't initiate battle. The Borg need a card to us. Ass- they're not fighting for fighting's sake. 
they are assimilating a ship. They right. are destroying a ship. So they need that objective to be on the table for them to do whatever. So they had it was more complicated for them to react. I mean, if you want to attack that cube, go right ahead. <laughs> you know? But you know, in the original game, the board cube was a dilemma. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you attempted a space mission. And then, oh, damn, it's the Borg Cube, and then the Borg Cube would go rampaging across the the space lines. Right. Once we had the first contact expansion with the Borg, there was a card that said, if the Borg Cube comes out as a dilemma, play this card or whatever, and that Borg Cube, like, get a Borg Cube from your deck. It Mm. replaces that Borg Cube. And, you know, so they, they found ways to interact with the cards that they'd already done when they weren't thinking ever of doing a Borg affiliation but sure i think the borg were so different that i'm I, like i never i'm not saying that's like the borg are my favorites on, on the show or anything in the card game i thought they were the uh, the best example of this game can do other things this game can do anything it sounds really fascinating it really does how, how it changed so much of the show or the game i mean that sounds awesome resistance is futile your life as it has been is over do you have any favorite cards? Well, I do feel like we should take one brief, brief moment to sort of explain some of the game in, in this regard. Like, cause sure. Because we, we haven't really done that. Talk, so it, we talked about, yeah, you have a space lane that you build where you lay out these missions, as, as Cisco had said, with planets or space things. And you have an outpost. Each affiliation is one outpost. Like, like if you're Federation, you have a space station. If you're a Klingon, you have a different kind of space station. You, you have one outpost that your ships would come, go and to and from. And then uh, we already talked about dilemmas. But then as far as what your deck is, what you're playing, what you're drawing from it, you know, you've got personnel and ships, which are pretty obvious. You've got equipment, which might be a tricorder or a gun or whatever. There's also um, the thing that causes a lot of the interaction of the game are events, which might be some big triggering event which affects that mission or maybe something else in the timeline or space line. Or there's interrupts, sort of like instant cards in a lot of card games where you can interfere with the other player. And then finally there's artifacts, which I hated artifacts. I don't know. Like, I only ever had one artifact no matter how many cards i had i only ever got one and it really wasn't even that interesting so i was like i don't i don't get the deal with the artifacts i I get they're supposed to be amazing power pieces but unless you have the right ones and they were ultra rare it just it it never excited me maybe if i had the one that could blow up the whole space lane i don't know maybe i would have been more excited but they didn't do much for me but as far as favorite cards first off the way i kept track of this because this is before i had a computer with access to the internet back in 94 I had uh, some, I don't even know where this came from. I'm holding it in my hands. I found it amongst my stuff. It is a magazine page that I photocopied. I don't even know what magazine it's from. I just know it was on page 88, whatever it was. And it was a full list of the original Star Trek Next Generation cards. And I sat there with a, with highlighters and would highlight them as I got them. Because it, it does tell you whether they're rare, uncommon, or whatever. So that was very exciting for me because, again, I love lists. But where I probably got the most excited as far as favorite cards would be ones that the main cast. Whenever I'd get a main cast, you know, Federation card, I'd get so excited. I'll I'll just trip hammer super quick through something. Like, in my hands, I'm holding, and it's exciting to me. Even 20, whatever was it, uh, 15? No, yeah, 25 years later, to be seeing these cards, it's exciting. You know, Jean-Luc Picard, Data, Jordi LaForge, Worf, Deanna Troy. <laughs> that, and that's, the, that's all the main cast I had. I didn't have Will Riker and, you know, other characters. I did have original Barclay card, which I love this one because the photo is brilliant. It's all, it's, it looks like it's in a, um, a storage room and there's all these barrels and you can just see this little sliver of Reg peeking between the barrels. So it's not even like a close up of his face like all the other cards. He's hiding, which is perfect for his personality. You know, Shelby, I did get Thomas Riker, which is, you know, that was super exciting. 
to find Thomas Riker. The one I actually showed my wife the other day is the Morgan Batesman one, which is, of course, Kelsey Grammer. So that was very cool. And then there's all the ships. I mean, I don't need to rattle off all these ships, but I absolutely loved all of these ships. From a strategy point of view, though, I uh, I played a lot of the USS Nebula cards because they were sort of like uh, as powerful as the Enterprise card, except it wasn't as difficult to get in there. Like, each ship had to have a certain amount of crew, and you had to have certain conditions to meet to take these ships out. Well, the Nebula was almost as powerful as the Enterprise, but it took less crew. So, And you could play multiple versions of the Nebula. So I stacked up on that a lot in my games. There was also a combat vessel, which was a non-aligned card, which was pretty darn powerful. But again, didn't take a lot of people to crew. Because for me, strategically, that was important. Because I had a hard time either getting a lot of personnel out onto the table to crew these ships. Because without a crew, a ship just sat there. wouldn't go anywhere. And so I, having ships that didn't require a lot of crew was a big thing for me. There was another card that I liked to use a lot called an Exocomp. It was this little, tiny, cute little droid. It's what they called Universal, which means you could have multiple ones in your deck. And the, the neat thing about it was it was aboard your ship. It could repair your ship if it got damaged. Because one of the mechanics in the game was if your ship ever got damaged, you had to go back to your outpost, which might be you know six planets down the line, which may take you three turns to get there depending on how slow your ship's going. So that was always a nice one to have on board your ship because it could do the repairs for you. And then as far as dilemmas go, like I always used to like to stock up on dilemmas, and I'll talk a little more about this in a minute, but uh, dilemmas where you could get bonus points, because again, I was all about winning, which is gathering bonus points. The only way you could get points was to beat missions, or if there were certain dilemmas that had bonus points, that was always helpful. And there were a couple other, like, kind of sort of, screw you dilemmas that I liked. <laughs> There's one called The Birth of Junior, which was, uh, there was this infant space-born life form. Uh, if you placed it on a ship, it would actually slow the ship down. So that so you could place it on an enemy ship, and the ship couldn't get back to base or go wherever they wanted, and, and it kept reducing how quickly they could go to the point where it destroyed the ship. It was a great one to kind of screw over your opponent. And there was one more that I liked, which is, remember the, the conspiracy episode, the bugs that crawled in and out of people's mouths? I love that episode. There was a specific dilemma card which would allow basically for you to get these little alien parasites into your opponent's crew, which allowed you to take over their ship. It was a great one where you could actually take over other people's ships. So those are, maybe I'm getting too deep in the weeds there, but those were some of my favorite cards. And I will take this opportunity to, real quick to point out, you mentioned the, the custom cards you made. I actually made two custom cards myself. Given that this was Next Generation, I tried to focus on the 24th century. So I made a, uh, a Captain Kirk card because I, I always love me old man Kirk. So I cut up some of the other various cards and pasted together this Captain Kirk card that it, it even wrote the texture. Captain Kirk was transported to the 24th century because of generations. And I, I built up what I thought his stats would be and everything. And so I cut up various cards. I cut up other trading cards I had that had a picture of Kirk, you know, from like maybe Star Trek VI or something. And the text here, and I showed this to Cisco and he laughed at me, but the text here, I typed it up on my Commodore 64 in 1995. That's how old this stuff was. And yes, I was still using a Commodore 64 in early 1995. And I, I cut it up, pasted it all together, went to Kinko's and did color copies. I was so proud of these things. And then I made a Worf card, but I wanted Worf with the Klingon affiliation. Because, you know, during the Civil War, he was part of there. So I built basically a Worf card using a lot of the same pieces and used a training card of Worf in the Klingon outfit. And I uh, put that together. You know, Worf served in the Klingon Empire during its brief Civil War. But again, it's, it's fun to see these years later and to see clearly my dot matrix printer that I had with my Commodore 64. It's pretty funny. What about you? Did you now, as, since you didn't play... You know, did you have any favorite cards? Well, I'm a collector first, yeah. So unusual cards uh, were more my thing than powerful ones or okay. useful ones. So Mod the Barber oh, is gosh. an early <laughs> fun one. A seemingly useless character with the useless skill of barbering. And then the first expansion had a Barber's Pole event that simply said, plays on table. That's all I did. What? <sighs> Those Boleans are so useless. 
<laughs> well, it was one of the few times. Eventually, they did things with barbering a little bit, but like one of the few times I did play was to try. There's this crazy mod the barber strategy that you can do, where you stuff shuttles full of mods and you burn through dilemmas like on suicide missions. Uh, but you always make sure to face Sarjenka, which is a she gives you five points if you stop for her. Okay. The little girl, the pen pal, Data's pen pal. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. So Mots don't have the skills to complete any missions, so the idea is to run out the clock. You slow down your opponent with distortion fields and uh, dilemmas and whatever, and you win with bonus points alone. I tried it. I might even have won with it. I definitely know my kid brother was pissed at me for using it. Sure. But it was like, okay, let's try this stunt deck. Can you actually win with Mod the Barber on shuttles? <laughs> And you can. It really depends on what the other player is doing, obviously. So I really like anything unusual, like the stuff in the Fajo collection I was talking about earlier. There's a card called Mirror Image where all the text is reversed, uh, like in a mirror image. Okay, yeah. So the designers had a good sense of humor about these things. They were like full of inside jokes, Easter eggs, you know, that kind of thing. Otherwise, if I go like a little further down the chronological line, I got to give some love to Deep Space Nine, the station. Of course you do. You could flip it to Terok Nor, so it could be Terok Nor or Deep Space Nine, depending. Oh, wow. And then did that replace yeah. uh, your outpost? Acted as an outpost, and even more than that, because the Deep Space Nine expansion came out with something called sites. And so you could lay down the infirmary or ops or quarks on the table, and then you could report characters to there, like specific characters would report to whatever, officers to ops or medical to the infirmary or whatever. And then it would also generate, if you had characters there, you could do things. Mm. So it was like a super outpost. Interesting. But again, that's like that. Did players use that? Was it just like, okay, this is just another element that I don't need? I'm sure there were a lot of successful strategies with it as well. It's just like, okay, this complicates the game for certain players. But yeah, Deep Space Nine being my favorite show, I was happy to see it developed in a way that looks like the show, that feels like the show. So I, I got to give it to that. So I don't have very many. My Mod the Barber strategy is about as good as it gets. And I wrote a lot of strategy articles. I've forgotten everything about them. I haven't reread <laughs> my website. But obviously, like the, the card reviews were full of strategies and many of them developed by other players, obviously, or me thinking about how you could link some cards. But you played. So can we talk strategy? Yeah, actually, that, that brings up something interesting, because you talk about the difference between... I, I mentioned some cards. The strategy you plan going into the game, and what actually happens in the game, is very different. All these strategies are great, but the problem is, when you actually play the game, it doesn't always work out. Because it all breaks down into the types of cards, and and how quickly they come out of your deck. You know, the, A lot of the strategy is designed for certain cards to interact with each other. And those combinations make sense, and they're awesome, and some of them are absolutely devastating. But a lot of times they just don't work in practice, because whether it's you know the rarity of the cards, like maybe you don't have one of those cards, because it's super rare. Or it's the luck of the draw. You know, how many times when you were playing the Magic the Gathering, use that example, where did you get screwed because you couldn't get your mana out, right? Same concept. If you don't get the card out of the deck, you're screwed. And other times, there's a necessity of you may get one of the cards for that combination, 
But you know what? A situation's come up where I need to play this card right now. I can't wait for the other card. And so you don't even get to do that combination. So the building of the deck doesn't always get to be as cool as you want it to. Like, yeah, I'm sitting here as I was going through the cards thinking of all these great strategies. But again, it's like, well, you know, if I don't get these two cards out at the same time early enough, then it's not going to work. So a lot of it was about balancing the various cards. And I actually found a sheet of paper in my deck that's legitly from back then. And I know that because it's written on a, a, a sheet of paper that's a printed 1994. <laughs> it has to do with a Diamond Comics retailer summit. And I wrote down, I, I don't know where I got this from, maybe a magazine, I don't know, but three different deck configurations. I'm not going to go through it, but it basically outlined, okay, you should get six of these cards or ten of these cards and four of these cards. And each one is slightly different. It's all depending on how you want to build your deck. Because you, the philosophies can be, you could really stack up on personnel. Because again, personnel and ships are what you need to get out there and complete the mission. So you stack up heavy on personnel and ships. Well, if you do that, it means that you're going a little softer on the um, events and interrupts, which are the things that will let you kind of you know, change the, the course of the game on the fly. So you kind of have to decide, which one do I want? Do I want to go heavy with ships and personnel? Or do I want to go heavy on events and interrupts, which allow you to course correct as things you can't expect? Me, I tended, looking at this chart, I even have a little star and indicated I always picked the middle one, which was like a sort of a balance of all those things. It's like you're talking about like the basic set. That's yeah. what strikes me here. Because eventually it was much easier to seed okay. things from the beginning of the game. Voyagers seeded. Deep Space Nine seeded. You could seed characters. You know all those crappy characters in the um, original set that had like only one skill. Sure. Later expansions made them into mission specialists. So suddenly you could draw them out of the deck super quick. And so they became useful where before they might have seemed very the opposite. Okay. <laughs> all right. You know, originally you're using them because that's all you have because you only bought a couple packs. You exactly. Know? I mean, that's that's where those weaker characters come in is when you don't have that many, you find yourself using, you know, these non-aligned people that have one skill. Well, because you can use it with any deck. And they give you that security skill you need desperately because you don't have Wharf or something like that, yeah. If you're making a lot of expansions, people are buying these new packs, you have more and more cards. In other words, those mission specialists that you have tons of don't do anything. So you have to create mechanics, cards, that make them useful, that make them report quicker, that make them come out of the deck faster, that give you bonus points when you use them, whatever it is. Decipher was constantly evolving the game to make like crap cards, suddenly useful to make powerful cards a bit nerfed because sometimes, oops, that one is a bit powerful now that we've come out with these other cards that can interact with it. And they were also putting add-ons, like little like side decks that you could play, whether that's sites, whether that's tactics, whatever it is. For me, it's it's like hard to say because strategy kept changing. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like the original articles of the Rolodex, they're very simple. Because all that existed when I started was probably like the first few expansions, like maybe up through Q Continuum or something. Mm -hmm. And then they kept adding, and then suddenly you're, well, those old articles are no longer valid, really. And the interactions that you can come up with by later expansions are much more complex and varied. So it's hard to, for me to say what, what is, what would be my strategy. I think first you choose an affiliation and then you go with that. It's like, how can this affiliation win? over any other affiliation and you got to stack your deck you know build it and then play it uh hopefully you know as efficiently as you can to get to that those hundred points for me it was a living organism for like more than 10 years sure and i'm interested to see i guess uh or that 
again, my philosophy was a lot of it was based on, am I going to be able to get these cards out of my deck into my hand? So I wonder, as you said, as they went on, those tweaks they did that allow you to get those cards out of your hand quicker, which is, sounds really interesting to me. So that'd be fascinating to learn more about. Yeah. As, far, as far as getting into other strategies, you know, one of the things I you could do is there's dilemmas. And at, the way in the seeding thing would work, at least in the first version, was you'd have dilemmas. And in the beginning, you would seed them. And you could choose to seed them under your own missions or under your opponent's missions. And a lot of times, you're sticking them under your opponent's because the goal is to kind of try and screw them over. Well, some of the dilemmas were worth bonus points. You mentioned some of those earlier, too, and I did, too. Or there's artifacts as well. Not that I knew it any damn thing about the artifacts but so they sucked they sucked yeah, they did so anyway so if <laughs> they you were either overpowered or you needed like a bunch of other cards to make them work at all so exactly yeah. there were conditions you had to have other things in play and if they didn't come out what's the point of it if you ever stuck a dilemma under your own mission basically it would create suspicion from the other player because you watch each other see the line and so the player watches you and you're like huh they stuck that mission under their own that suggests to them you know, you're thinking as your opponent that they think they can beat that mission and there's something of value there. So they would hone in on that because you, you could stack mo- dilemmas so you can put more dilemmas in there if you want. Anyway, but sometimes you'd throw them out there as a ruse. You'd be like, all right, look, there's n- I know there's no way I'm going to accomplish the mission, so I'm going to stick this horrible dilemma under there just to trick my opponent into going after it and let them destroy themselves. You know, just as a ruse, you would do that from time to time. Red herrings. There's also a, uh, there was a red shirt strategy. It's sort of similar to your Mott the Barber strategy, which is where you load up a ship with very weak characters and send them on away missions, basically just to pull the dilemma out. So you know what's out there. So you're like, okay, so that's what that, you know, that my, my red shirts are dead now, or they're frozen, they can't move. And now I know what that dilemma is, so I'm going to build up my enterprise and go over there and, you know, take it out. For me, uh, as far as the battles go, I, I mentioned this earlier, I really did feel the away team battles were very rare. That's where you beam down to a planet site, because some of the missions were planets or space or whatever. And I don't, I, I'm sure we must have had away team battles, but I don't remember them happening, because one of the mechanics was you could beam down and beam back out fairly quickly. And so they were very, very rare. I remember the ship battles being more common. And as a player, and this was sort of a strategy and also kind of tied into your uh, affiliation if you wanted, you had to decide how bloodthirsty were you going to be. Because some cards and combinations, if you were lucky enough to get them all out, could grant you the ability to do exceptionally cruel things to your opponent very quickly. Whether it would be completely blow up their ship or wipe or mess up the whole space line, whatever. you got to balance how much do you want to win the game versus how much do you want to piss off the other person sitting on the other side of the table because if you really blow up their ship or something that they worked really hard to get out it is a little disheartening and frustrating and do you want them to come back and play again next week you know you got to decide is it worth it to crush them or or just to have fun so you got to balance all that out and also sometimes you tie that into your affiliation you know if i'm playing federation i don't want to be unnecessarily cruel to my opponent now if i'm romulan eh, maybe i do you know, one of the things you could do as well was you mentioned a Borg destroying an outpost. Well, pretty much, if somebody destroyed your outpost, the game was pretty much over. Because you weren't going to be able to pull enough stuff out of your deck at that point. It was kind of a dick move, too. Uh, so I don't really remember it happening all that often. But again, it's, it's those balances you got to decide, am I playing the affiliation Am I playing to have fun, or am I playing to make sure that this this rare person I found who's actually willing to play the game with me, do I want to make sure they come back the next week? <laughs> so those are, yeah. those are some various strategies I had. Now, I'll end this part here by just basically saying, you know, my buddy John. John moved away. We finished college, and he moved away, and I didn't really have anyone else to play with, so I sort of just faded out with the game. And that was about the late summer of 95, and so that's why I, I never even was buying cards by the time the expansions came out. 
Now, he bought a few and later, years later gave me a whole stack of what he had left over. So I actually have a few of the Warp Pack characters. I have a few of the alternate universe cards. I was going through them last night. I was very excited to find Montgomery Scott and Lieutenant Junior Grade Picard from the alternate universe, which was very exciting. But beyond that, I, I didn't have any expansions at all. Now, for you as a collector, and you've sort of hinted at which ones, which, which expansions really sparked your imagination? Yeah, well, I think in retrospect, the ones where they invented a whole new mechanic... You know, whether it's sights or tactics. Or, I remember these more, you know, as being more exciting because suddenly the game was changing. Others added to themes, you know, or or they added yet another batch of Federation personnel. To, you know, they introduced the TOS characters and the movie versions of those characters and the mirror versions of those characters. That's fine, but, you know, at some point it's like, how many Spocks do I need? <laughs> it's less exciting. The first real game breaker was First Contact. Because the Borg was so refreshing. The movie images were very high quality as oh, well. Yeah, so, so it's like you, you can tell where like second edition comes out with Nemesis, uh, a marketing reason to make a big push. Sure. So First Contact was that and was like, you know, a hit movie. I think that one has to be my favorite for those reasons with a shout out to something that was called Enhanced First Contact, which was like packs that they sold eventually because that included acetates that you could put over another character to assimilate it. So if you assimilated no somebody else's way. character, you could you use like a card sleeve and then you slip down the uh, the Borg interface. And that those packs also had like Locutus versions of Dukat, Garon, and Tomalok. Dude, that's so was, freaking cool. Which was very, very cool. And eventually they had like a, uh, a Wayun as well, like in another expansion. Those are really, really neat. And you wanted those, I mean... Drones, 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 right. clean drones. <laughs> you know, you wanted those Locutus. Locutus himself is in the Fajo collection, so he was like a high price item. So getting all of these other voice boxes, you know, was was kind of fun. So I'd say that is still the winner. I wonder, you know, did people really use sights or tactic cards? Or could you maybe take the tactic cards and make a little, a fun little mini game of Starship Battles with it? You know, just like as its own thing. Sure, I think sure. you could. Like these side trips were never particularly efficient, I don't think. You know, some of these side decks were hardly used. Like the Q Continuum side deck, which was the first one they ever came out with, I doubt was used very much. I don't know. Maybe players can tell me different. You know, it's possible. And then the, like later, like a really late expansion was um, like a Trouble with Tribbles one. And they tied it in with a Tribbles game, which was just like a, oh a fun, gosh. maybe more kid-centric <laughs> game. You know, where... Tribbles were worth points. What it had, it had Tribbles and Troubles as cards. Tribble cards and Trouble cards. And Tribble cards was like one Tribble, ten Tribbles, hundred Tribbles, you know, so up to like a million Tribbles or something. Mm -hmm. So these cards were in various orders of uh, commonality, of course. But like there's one Tribble here. Where there's a one Tribble, you could play a card that turned them into ten Tribbles. That could okay. turn them into those into hundred tribbles and then the trouble cards would play on those play this trouble i guess if there's uh 10 tribbles this effect if there's 100 tribbles this effect if there's 10,000 tribbles klingon ship screwed you know right <laughs> so, right that, that was like a fun obviously th those could have been events if, if you wanted to reduce the number of card types those are really events mm -hmm. but making them into tribble and trouble cards just was like a fun story centric you know, amusing way to troll the other player. Sure. I got I to gotta give it to that expansion as well for bringing that in. So as these other expansions came out, 
could you play like uh, if we were to sit down with these things? Could could I play the the next generation on one side of the timeline and you play the TOS on the other side of the timeline? Is that possible? Really, you could have TOS and TNG and whatever characters, all Enterprise characters, all on the same ship. Oh, really? It, oh, okay. They did outlaw one of the cards from the uh, basic set, which was raise the stakes. Yeah, I hated that card. Everybody hated it, and it, it was outlawed, and you couldn't use it. So the idea was that in because there's a magic tradition in magic, if you won the game, you could pull like a random game out of the other person's deck and keep it. It was sort of the tradition. Random card, not game. Ran, you pull uh, random yeah, card. random cards are. So Star Trek didn't have that, but you could play a card called Raise the Stakes, where suddenly it's on the table. Maybe you played it just as you thought you might win. I guess. So where that would happen as well. But imagine losing your future Enterprise, which was the first super rare card. It was very, very difficult to get out of the alternate universe set. You can have as many of my uh, lower deck characters that you want, folks. Don't take my uh, ultra rares, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in any way, that, that wasn't really the point of the game. So they outlawed it and good. You know, I was rummaging through that giant box. It's like, like imagine a box of um, paper towels that the the store would get before putting them on the shelves. Right. That's the size of the box of with all my cards in it. Dude, that's insane. And I found a starter deck two, which was like, eventually they came out with a starter deck from its basic set, but uh, now they included cards that you could, you know, play out of the box. So there are six missions in here that were specifically made for the starter deck. Probably got like a seedable treaty We'll see. We'll open it. This is exciting here. So is this first edition, second edition? What are we talking about? So it's first edition. Okay. And it, it's all like the original cards. It's probably like this is unopened and still has a cellophane on it. I probably didn't buy this. It was probably sent by Decipher. And I didn't open it maybe thinking, oh, it could be fun to do like a open your deck and play with a friend, which I didn't have. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I do have all these cards already. So I know that there's nothing in here that's going to be new to my collection so i never opened it i've often wondered how much the the cigarette pack uh, industry benefited with the cellophane ceiling and that little strip you pull off that benefited from the expansion of collectible card games because i, I we're, I'm, I'm excited to hear this noise of this ripping so get it right up on the microphone buddy yeah but this one is like a like a thicker cellophane and it's uh i don't know it's not the same it's not a cigarette pack one okay so you can tell it's like a thicker I've never been so excited to hear plastic crinkle. Of course, there's a little booklet, and they always put the booklet in between the cards and, let's say, like the bonus cards that you're supposed to get. Yeah, now I can see what Starter Deck 2 did. It had, like, six new missions. It had a Ferengi trading post. Oh, okay. Which is, uh, it's a seedable outpost. Nice. So you already have it, uh, and you can already seed a, like, if you had it. A Decora class ship here, and it says, or build where you have a Ferengi engineer. Each player's non-board cards may report and mix a board, because it's a trading post. So this was the way to say, it doesn't matter what cards you have in this pack, you can use them, because they could all report here no matter what. Like a treaty, it's perfect, okay. And in fact, instead of a treaty, they had Memory Wipe, which is from the episode Conundrum. The picture has uh, Ensign Row getting uh, hit with like a green ray. This mm -hmm. is the, the episode where they all lose their memories. Right. So you see this on, on the table, and all your characters can mix regardless of affiliation. Oh, that's clever. Okay, nice. So, so now you know whatever you got in your pack, you can play, no matter what. Like, the game can begin. You have everything you need. But the rest is random. So you would have, like, uh, three, probably three rare cards, 
And then um, I don't even know which ones are rare, man. Yeah, I don't remember anymore. <laughs> I, I used to, but I don't now, that's for sure. So I'm looking at these cards. They're all white border, that edition of the game. I think probably, hmm, let me see. The I think Telepathic Alien Kidnappers is a pretty strong dilemma, wasn't it? So it feels like maybe it is. So, you know, you've got your normal interrupts, Amanda Rogers, which kills any interrupt itself. You've got characters like Sir Knuckle Rami. Wow. Reva and um, hmm, Data. Okay, this is one of my rare cards. Oh, wow. Okay. So I got a Data in here, which was one of the prime characters, personnel for the Federation. Cytherians is a dilemma that gets you 15 points because your ship has to run to the end of the space line. <laughs> and then you get so the 15 points. Okay, yeah, USS Galaxies. You know, I got ships. I've got ships. I've got dilemmas. I've got characters from... I'm, I'm cheating. I'm cheating by looking at my list. Cytherians are rare. So there you go. Oh, okay, so the rares would be, uh, let's see, Data, Cytherians, and so possibly two rares in here. That could be it. And then the rest are, like, runabouts and, uh, you know, lame ships and lame missions and, and weak personnel from all three original affiliations. Starter Deck 2 was two rares. Yeah, Data, that's that's pretty good. That was one of the nice things is, you know, I, I don't remember what the distribution was in the booster packs, but, you know, getting a rare card wasn't... I don't believe you could guarantee that in every, every booster. I'm not sure. You definitely were guaranteed. Every booster had one rare card. Do they really? Okay. Yeah. The original boosters were 15 cards, and then mm-hmm. eventually they dropped that down to nine. So remember Ugh. the nine? Yeah, the nine was, well, it was like too many common cards. Mm-hmm. People were sick of common cards, and you got so many. So it's like one rare card, three uncommons, and then the rest were common. And that's true whether it was 15 or nine cards to a pack. I guess you got a better deal then with nine, yeah. Yeah, well, fewer cards, obviously, for the same money, probably. But again, how many again? How many of those lower decks, you know, pseudo cards do you really need? Exactly. So I think from first contact on, the the packs got smaller, but you still got that one rare, uh, which could have been switched out for a super rare. Who knows? And then you had like the three uncommons, and and then the rest were commons. Uh, so in a pack like this, two rares, two rares. But you want to buy this starter deck too because you get those eight new cards mm-hmm. black border that make you basically can you can play out of the box because of this if we were to play right now if you'd open one of these packs you'd get a different distribution but we'd all have these same missions the outposts that we can use and a, a super treaty in a way right we'd be able to we'd be able to play the game which is great it's funny as i get older you know i, I have so many fond memories of this game but one thing i guess i don't miss is that hunt for the rare and ultra rare type cards because it was it was so frustrating when you'd buy a pack even though you got a rare or a bunch of uncommons it's like well i've already got all these you know i just spent i don't know what three bucks i don't remember on a pack and you're like ah so i i don't miss the hunt for those once you have a a large enough stack like at first the hunt's fine because everything's new but after a while it got frustrating so i don't miss that but i do like the excitement of hearing you open that pack and not knowing what was coming i actually kind of felt that i felt the the excitement of the unknown so that was pretty cool and i agree with that because obviously i had so many cards but eventually i'm getting boxes full of booster packs and you're just ripping them up ripping them up and ripping them up you know and, and looking at not a pack of nine, but how many, I don't know how many packs there are in, in a box, but, you know, like 30 packs of nine or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying, oh, my favorite cards, like Mod the Barber, like the early expansions are the ones where there was that thrill of discovery. But eventually, I'm opening so many packs at a time, there isn't that. I got two boxes. Let's see what percentage of the expansion I got. 
you know, and they're, they're, there's no hunting for it. There's no you neither have the disappointment of there isn't a rare one or the excitement of, oh, this is the rare one in here because you're opening so many at a time. So right. yeah. I sort of I sort of lost that over time. It's not really my fault, but that's just how I was consuming the cards. I wonder how the collectible card game market is doing. I mean, obviously Magic's still going strong, and, and uh, I believe Pokemon still is. But yeah, I wonder, yeah. I mean, there's certainly not the plethora of them that there was in 94, 95, when everyone was racing to be the next Magic. So I wonder, you know, uh, how the stability of that market is beyond the big companies. Even the big companies, I mean, like Decipher, Decipher sort of transitioned towards, or tried to transition towards um, licensed role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were going to have a Matrix RPG, I think. I don't, never, I don't know if it ever came out. They had the they, they took over for uh, for Star Trek RPG after um, Last Unicorn lost the license. But now they basically make murder mystery games. Hmm. Okay. So I, I I don't know. So I feel like Magic ate up the whole thing, or like the the, the few big ones that won the war. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it just isn't a thing. It isn't really a thing except for those big ones. And the big ones have like these big tournaments, nationals. and But Star Trek CCG, because eventually, well, you know, the license has lapsed and uh, Decipher's no longer making it, obviously, it's fallen into, you know, where can you get these? You really have to hunt for them. Well, I imagine if, if you're interested in checking them out, folks, I mean, I imagine you could go on eBay and buy, you know, a ton of common ones, dirt cheap. And pick up some uncommons, not too expensive, and just you know get some smatterings of them and, and find some friends to play with. Because I mean, the game is fun; it really is. And uh, I, again, I can't vouch for the later expansions, but I know we had an absolute blast again playing night after night after night of the even just the original series, uh, original box. It was so much fun. And if you want to look at the cards, there is a dedicated wiki uh, that covers both editions and the work of the continuing committee. Uh, which is a group of fan card designers that kept the game going in both editions. Oh, wow. And with Decipher's Blessing using that same license. So uh, they're, they're just virtual, obviously, those ones, but they're building them just like proper expansions. So like they're doing Discovery and Picard? No, and lo- no, no. They're really using the original license's terms because they don't want to get into trouble. So there's no reboot movies and there's no uh, none of these new CBS All Access shows. Okay. So there's everything up through Enterprise. Okay. I'll put the link in the image gallery. We'll also include a link to all surviving material I wrote for the game's forums, including the entire card of the day Rolodex uh, and an incredible number of non-graphic dream cards. <laughs> They're just like one dead link in the whole thing. So, but the rest works. Oh, wow. Uh, I'll even include links to the two CC, like I said, the two CCGs I created based on the STCCG template, and you'll see immediately where the inspiration comes from. Lots of nostalgia. Have fun with it. As long as I'm alive, I'm paying, you know, for that website to still hold all these items. <laughs> so, but uh, even if it's other games like those ones, it's it's really my passion for the SDCCG that spawned it. You know, it's it's very much a cousin to that game. And I think passion is something we share about this product. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually where it comes from for me, is the passion and the joy of I had fun playing. I, uh, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to John for his willingness to continue to play the game with me for as long as we did. And uh, it was such a blast. And uh, I, again, I, I bought a ton of the Doctor Who collectible card game, but none of the other card games uh, that I've ever played, I played as frequently or as emotionally as I did, uh, ironically, as Vulcans, uh, the Star Trek card game. All right. Well, I think that covers it. What are you working on right now, Shag? Tell the folks. Well, I'm starting up a new blog that I'd like everyone to check out. It's going to be called Q-Tips Blog of Geekery. Um, So you can find... (laughs) Now, uh, everything you 
that I'm working on is currently on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Primarily, you know, the, the Aquaman and Firestorm show, the Who's Who show, the Just League International Blah Ha show, Digest Cast, things like that. And then I pop around in various places and my guests are in, in, in places or come here to stink up uh, your Star Trek show or maybe even bait Siskoid into creating a new podcast, which I did recently. So please visit fireandwaterpodcast.com and that's where you can find me. I'm really happy that we did this because I think it's in the promo. You know, the promo set like rattles off a bunch of topics. Oh, does it really? Oh, wow. All those years ago. How funny. Yeah. And the promo is built on the announcement. You know, it's basically just uh, a re-edit of the announcements of what was going to be, I don't know, like the first year's slate of shows. <laughs> and there are a number of those that never happened. We're, we're, we're fulfilling it right now, buddy. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to get through those this year, if I can. This whole thing happened uh, perfectly because you reached out to me and we talked about what to do. My garage has been a mess for like three years, guys. I have so much of my junk in my garage. It's just, it's been a complete mess. And my wife got a kick during the pandemic to reorganize. So we bought ceiling racks. We got shelves. We got all, got the whole garage organized. It looks fantastic. And we had just completed it like maybe a week or so before Cisco reached out to me about doing this. And if he had reached out even a week earlier, I would have been like, dude, I don't even know where my cards are. They're somewhere in a box in the garage. I'll never find them. But because of the timing, I think this was meant to be. When you reached out to me, I knew exactly where they were, which was uh, perfect. Awesome. Thanks again. I know you have to go back to the discard pile now, but (laughs) I'll stick around for Subspace Transmissions, and that's Star Trek News, and your feedback on our previous episode, plus... I asked our Patreon followers if they had any experience with this game, and uh, I got an answer or two, which I'll, uh, I'll read in due course. And action! It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Incoming Subspace Transmissions. The Critics' Choice Super Awards are a special event honoring the most popular fan-obsessed genres across both television and movies, including superhero, science fiction, fantasy, horror, action, and animation. All the current Star Trek Universe shows picked up uh, multiple nominations. Discovery and Picard are both up for science fiction fantasy series against uh, The Mandalorian, Outlander, Upload, and others. Lower Decks is nominated for Best Animated Series against such fair as uh, Archer and Harley Quinn. There are also noms for Sonequa Martin-Green as Best Actress, Patrick Stewart as Best Actor, and both Jack Quaid and Tawny Newsom in the voice talent categories. The Critics' Choice Association will also present its Legacy Award to the Star Trek franchise, recognizing its cultural impact across multiple decades. The winners will be revealed on January 10th on the CW Network in a COVID-safe gala hosted by Kevin Smith and Danny Fernandez. In the early 2010s, William Shatner produced and directed a series of four Star Trek documentaries, and now they're out on Blu-ray at Shout Factory as The Captain's Collection. With additional special features, there's also a Shout Factory exclusive special edition with a fifth disc that includes even more bonus features. Uh, The collection includes The Captains, in which Shatner interviews each of the pre-CBS all-access captains. Uh, It's the only one I've seen, and uh, actually it's very, very interesting. The Captain's Close-Up, a 
follow-up that gives each of the actors a more structured profile, but it's essentially material shot for the captains. Then there's Chaos on the Bridge, which is an unvarnished look at the turbulent early years of Star Trek The Next Generation, and Get a Life, a love letter to Star Trek fans and Shatner's thoughts about fandom. Among the extras is a bonus documentary called Still Kicking about Shatner's return to the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. Back in 2018, Brent Spiner starred in a short musical comedy pilot called Brentwood, where he played a fictionalized version of himself, trying to leave his Star Trek The Next Generation character of Data behind as he worked as a drama professor. Uh, in the Brentwood version of his life, Spiner's main nemesis is his former TNG co-star, LeVar Burton. It was shown at some festivals, shopped as a pilot, but now it's finally online. Look for it on YouTube. Just search for Brentwood. As I mentioned last episode, Captain Janeway was memorialized by a monument in the character's hometown of Bloomington, Indiana this fall. Now, there's a push to commemorate Leonard Nimoy in his hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, with a statue of his iconic Vulcan salute. The concept art by artist David Phillips shows a giant hand that would ultimately weigh as much as three tons. Nimoy's family is on board, but funding the project and securing the right place for it is an ongoing process, which interested parties will be able to follow on an official website yet to come. Ensign Mount, set to head Star Trek Strange New Worlds as Captain Pike, is seeking out new life and new civilizations in real life. METI, the organization devoted to messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, announced last month that Mount had joined its board of directors. METI was founded in 2015 to expand the scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence, better known as SETI, which only listens for alien signals. METI is about transmitting signals to possible alien ears. It's expected that Mount will use his public profile to create awareness for the project. And while it's not exactly Star Trek, the Orville is certainly a close cousin to the franchise, so a bit of news there. The show had started production in October of 2019 and been forced to stop due to the COVID crisis. According to a source in the production, cameras will start rolling again this week. Completing season three under strict COVID protocols will take five to six months, so its debut on Hulu doesn't have a set date yet though the team hopes it will be before the end of 2021. The season will consist of 11 episodes, each longer than the first two seasons on Fox. Before dealing with your comments on the last episode, let's look at what our Patreon followers had to say about their favorite Star Trek CCG cards. Well, we do have one comment here from Paul Keenzel, who says, I played it when it came out and still have a box full of them somewhere in my basement. My favorite card was any kind of dilemma card. Anytime one came out, we all yelled, dilemma! And I still think of that today anytime I come upon that word. So it seems calling things out, just like Shag, was an important part of this game. And elsewhere than on Patreon, my friend Radagast, which was the name he uh, picked up once he started getting into the Lord of the Rings CCG, or TCG as they called it then, and known as Michael Eddington, that was his handle on the Star Trek boards, had a strong, visceral, nostalgic reaction to the announcement that we would be doing this show. So... Hi, Michael, Radagast, or whatever you want to call yourself these days. 
Okay, now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, Enterprises Retro Design, with guests Ruth and Darren Sutherland. Let's start with Degsy O'Brien. He says, I still think that how it looks doesn't matter. Comparing how a particular future is depicted in TOS as opposed to ENT or DIS is sort of, though not exactly, like comparing a World War II movie made during World War II with a World War II movie made now. There will inevitably be differences in effects, props, script, dialogue, attitudes, inclusivity, etc. Uh, how it looks is not as important as the story being told. Well said. Chris Franklin says, I guess the incongruities with TOS bothered me a little when Enterprise debuted, but I got the aesthetic of bridging the modern astronaut with the classic look. Full disclosure, I haven't watched Discovery, but... I like what I see of Pike's upcoming show. And yes, setting a show in that time means making a concession to a more modern futuristic look is unfortunately necessary. What I don't like in Picard, which I understand originated in Discovery, is that jaded, gritty addition to Trek to make it appeal to an outside audience that honestly still isn't interested just because they curse now. That seems silly to me. I did enjoy Picard overall, and I appreciate pulling the Federation back from the brink of darkness, but I don't think I want that in the pre-Kirk era. Yeah, Chris, I think Discovery has actually walked back <laughs> from the cursing element. I mean, they still use like the softer ones, which are about as strong as what we see in the movies. But a couple episodes back... Tilly held back an F-bomb. So I'm thinking it's it's because there were complaints or new showrunners didn't like it. Or anyway, the language, the language hasn't been worse than in the movies since then. Nord uh, says season four was definitely the best one. Uh, he's talking about Enterprise here, of course. And what I wish they had started with. Instead of getting it together too late to save the show. The time travel patchwork plot and the ends justify the means season earned it no more chances. David S. Gutierrez says, firstly, what a couple of sweethearts those Sutherlands are. Love those two. And I think we can all agree. Then he says, Cisco and I kind of talked about this a few shows ago, but Trek has to keep up aesthetically with the times, always pushing forward and looking familiar at the same time. Personally, I love the clunky look from the 60s. And when someone flips a switch, there's some effort to it. It's business for an actor and it adds to the reality of things. But things move on. That's true. Tim Price says, what a great topic of discussion. And always a joy to hear the Sutherlands. Honestly, I was in post-Voyager Star Trek fatigue and never got around to watching Enterprise, which is not Enterprise's fault and not me following the negative press. I just didn't make a point of trying it out. I've probably lost what little is left of my Trek cred, but... You're all enticing me to give it a go. And since all of this stuff is now on Netflix, isn't it? All these old Star Trek shows are all on there. There's no reason to, you know, hopefully people will try and discover the eras that they missed. And let's end with Gene Hendricks, who really didn't have a problem with the look of Enterprise. It was everything else, I think. <laughs> he says, like you all said, this is a much more cramped ship, akin to a submarine, so the way everything is laid out makes a lot of sense. Similarly, the uniforms being midway between NASA jumpsuits and TOS uniforms works. The set design and costuming are spot on. My issue with the show was the apparent lack of knowledge of TOS in the writing. There were specific things mentioned on screen that were directly contradicted in Enterprise. And the annoying, to me, temporal Cold War, I just couldn't watch more than a few episodes before the fourth season, and even that course correction wasn't enough to win me over. And for a show where the captain almost started an interplanetary war to save his dog, that's saying something. Is Archer, Star Trek's John Wick, is that what it is? Uh, he says, I think that it's due to this, that some 
someone that knows me has warned me off Discovery. I'm glad there are people that enjoy Enterprise and Discovery. They're just not my kind of shows. If I need my tricks fixed, there's always Star Trek Online. Well, you know, Gene, I know you love the motion picture, and I could just say here that, you know, what Discovery did in terms of transforming, like, the Klingons, the motion picture did first. So... <laughs> On that note, uh, let me say that the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content, want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list, like Doug Van Diver, who is now captain of the Federation's new flagship, the USS Tiberius. Congratulations, Doug. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, on the Fire and Water Facebook page, on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcast, and you can also follow the show on Spotify. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs> <laughs>